on this one? All right. Ooh, whoa. I'm not used to this, so I'll, uh, I'll do my best. Uh, Tom was just asking if I would share with you about Ebenezer. That, song, that, that hymn is a little confusing because they've updated the lyrics to make it more understandable, which is wonderful. That's always a good idea, but in the process, you can lose some very beautiful imagery. And in the Old Testament, right as there's a major transition going on, uh, there's a judge who comes to lead Israel named Samuel, and uh, they, they all gather to meet, and he's giving the people a charge about following the Lord and so on. They've just seen God bring the Ark of the Covenant back, and um, they're looking for God to keep working. And it says, and this is 1 Samuel seven twelve. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And Ebenezer actually means stone of help, which I think is probably a, a good, it's always a good hymn, but I think it's a good hymn right now because God has helped us so far and um, we're expecting him to continue to help us. And so that's always a good image to just kind of key back into and say, help, God. Um, you may be here this morning and you need help in your personal life and you want God to speak in. Um, as a church family, you were in transition that's challenging and difficult, and we need his help. And so being reminded that our God is a God who helps, he is our living Ebenezer. Um, it's a great thing to remember. So let's pray and let's ask for his help right now. Lord Jesus, we do ask for your help. In this moment, may you uh, please speak to us. Would you please do your work in our hearts and help us to just grow, grow in intimacy with you. Thank you for our family, Lord. We ask for you to be our Ebenezer as a family right now. And as we look into your word, we ask that um, Holy Spirit, you would work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you'd like to take your Bibles, go ahead and open them, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 9, please. We're continuing our series there through Luke, Luke chapter 9. And as you're turning there, let me just kind of set us up for what we're going to read here and ask some questions of us. Most of you will be familiar with the name Ray Romano one of the better-known comedians in our day and age. Uh, and he was a struggling comedian. He lived in his parents' basement until he was 29 years old. So he wasn't like this immediate success. And then he hit it big and wound up with a sitcom on a major network that just rocked everything. And by the eighth season, he had a $50 million contract for the year, making him the highest-paid TV actor up to that point ever, a uh, very commonly household known name, uh, great wealth, great success. And at the taping of the very last um, show, the uh, audience was sitting there and after the taping of the show, he just came out and had a little heart to heart kind of as a way of celebrating what had happened and so on and answered questions. And one of the things he talked about was his own journey and how the ups and downs of that. And um, in, in sharing that journey, he said, actually, when I moved here nine years ago, my brother Richard, uh, on whom the brother in the show is loosely based, um, slipped a note into my suitcase. 
And he pulled it out. It was much folded, obviously much looked at. And he started weeping as he read it. And the note that his brother gave him said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? A verse that actually comes from our text this morning. And I think there's a question that's really significant for us to be asking ourselves and asking the Holy Spirit to search us over. And that is, what world am I seeking to gain? What is it that drives my life? What is it that I would want to pursue, want to receive, want to experience? And as I look at that thing in light of God's plan, is that something that will wither my soul? Or is that something that will cause it to thrive? Is that something that will lead me to life or to death? And I think that's a question that we can ask at a couple of levels because some of us in the room perhaps aren't really sure where we stand with God. We haven't got this whole church and God and Jesus thing fully figured out. Not that any of us ever has it fully figured out. But you're still very much exploring those kinds of questions and a very basic level, that's the question that you have to answer. What's driving my life, and is that really going to lead to life or death? Most of us looking around the room, I know, have a history of walking with Jesus in some fashion or other. And I think the question doesn't lose its relevance. Because even in our regular interaction, our regular life with God, that's still the defining question. What is, what's driving me now? What is it that I'm pursuing now? Is that going to lead to life or is that going to lead to death? Is that going to shrivel my soul or is it going to cause it to blossom and thrive? And this morning's passage answers that question. And it talks about discipleship. And it turns discipleship upside down, if you will, from how a lot of people think about it. And a defining question that I need to ask in terms of discipleship is, does what I seek define Jesus, or does Jesus define what I seek? If I have a, a dream that I'm pursuing, if I have a, a goal, if I have a, whatever I'm chasing after, my life is read through that lens, and it's easy for me to look at Jesus through that lens and find what I'm looking for in him, or be disappointed in him when I don't find it. And that's really the problem. That's upside down. Because really, who Jesus is is supposed to define what I'm seeking. And that's how this whole passage pivots this morning. So if you just want to follow along, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18, reading all the way down through verse 36. It says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Because that's really the question. What do you think of me? And Peter answered, you're the Christ of God. Okay, there's this question floating around because of all the things Jesus is doing. In fact, just a few verses prior, Herod gives those same options. Is, is Jesus one of the prophets? Is he John the Baptist? Who is this guy? And the disciples hear that chatter, 
And Jesus says, it, what everyone else thinks of me is not really my number one concern. My question is, what do you think of me? Who do you think I am? Because who you think I am is going to define our relationship. You've said you want to be my disciples. You said you want to follow me. You said you want to have relationship with me. So let's start with the, the fundamental question, who am I? Who is it that you're relating to? Who is it that you're following? What does it look like? And Peter gets the answer right. Totally cool. You're the Christ of God. And in that statement, he gives everything that would be possible to know at that point. The full reality that it's not just the servant of God, but God himself come in the flesh. That's something that Jesus has to reveal further over time. They're just beginning to get glimpses. But this is as far as it would be capable for Peter to go at the moment. And it is a spot-on correct answer. You're the one that God sent. You're the one we're looking for. You're the Lord. You're the king. You're the prince. You're the anointed one. You're the hope of Israel. You're the one I'm with. Right answer. So it's very surprising how Jesus responds because the next thing Jesus says, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Right? That's really a lot. He's not just saying, shh, don't tell people. It's he strictly charged them and he commanded them. Whatever you do, shh, don't tell people. It's a very emphatic shush. Now, G Peter's just gotten the right answer. Jesus has come to be the Messiah. People need to know that. Now we've got the right answer out there, and immediately Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And in fact, he says it rather aggressively. Don't tell anyone. Why? I think he does that because almost right can be all wrong. And just because you have the right label for me doesn't mean you actually understand what that means. And you need to have a full understanding. A little bit of information can be actually dangerous. Some of you will recall in the 80s when the Chicago Bears were the football team to be reckoned with. And uh, there was a... Um, chaplain service, a chapel service the team had, and, and a huge representation from the team. A lot of the players and coaches came, and in fact, Mike, Mike Ditka, the head coach, actually chose the seat next to the chaplain for the service, and as the service is going on, they call on William Perry, better known as the refrigerator, to get up and, and fridge, lead us in the Lord's Prayer. So he stands to his feet and goes up to the front, and while he's doing that, Ditka leans over to the chaplain, and he says, I bet you 20 bucks the fridge doesn't know it. And without thinking, the chaplain said, I'll take that bet. <laughs> you know, there's those moments when judgment lags behind our mouth, and I'm not sure that it really was the most appropriate thing for the chaplain to bet on the Lord's Prayer <laughs> and bet against a player he's trying to shepherd, but nonetheless, that's what happened in the moment. And so they're watching with added interest because now 20 bucks is riding on this and, and the refrigerator gets up and he bows his head and he closes his eyes and solemnly begins to share those so familiar words. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. They're stunned. And Ditka in particular leans over to the chaplain, shaking his head, and said, I didn't think he knew it, and handed him 20 bucks. <laughs> A little bit of knowledge isn't the same thing as actually knowing something. And 
acting on a little bit of knowledge can actually be rather foolish. Jesus wants his disciples to really understand. Okay, you got the right label. Yep, I'm the Christ. But, and this passage really unfolds with, if you want the two main points that drive this passage forward logically, here they are. I'm not that kind of Messiah, so you are not to be that kind of disciple. That's what he's telling them. I'm not that kind of Messiah. You have an expectation of what it means for me to be the Christ, and it's not yet that that's going to be the way. Which means how you follow me is also going to look different than you're thinking right now. I'm not that kind of Messiah, so you can't be that kind of disciple. Look at how it unfolds. So Jesus says, don't tell anyone, verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There's the whole of the gospel. I didn't come to just rule and kick Rome out. I came to fix things from the very core, and that means I have to fix you from the heart out, which means I have to make reconciliation right and available with my Father. I have to pay for sin. I have to make it possible to have real relationship, so I'm going to die. But I'm going to rise again. That's the kind of Messiah I am. And what you're looking for, that comes later, which means what you're hoping for in light of that that also comes later. You need to be my disciple right now in light of this, in light of the cross. Verse 23, and he said to all, now here's where you can't be the kind of person you're thinking. It's a different model of discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Right? If If Jesus is our master, and that's the kind of thing he was called to, and the servant is not greater than the master, what does that mean for what I'm called to? Jesus is going to bring wonderful things, but before he can bring deliverance, He has to go through death. Before he can triumph, there are trials. Before he can exult, he has to endure. You don't take the victory lap until after you've fought the battle. So he's about to fight the battle. And he's calling them into discipleship in light of that reality. And really what this says for us is that we're invited into this great conflict that's not yet completed. Jesus has, has crushed Satan, but he's not removed him. And the battle still rages. And if I'm invited to partner in a conflict, that means struggle is necessarily a part of my daily life. And that's not real pleasing, and that's not real popular, and Jesus needs to get that across to his disciples. These guys that are right there right now, with the exception of one, if the historical tradition is to be trusted, and it's very likely on target, all of them but one die because of their discipleship, and the one who doesn't die is just because he's like a gnarly old tree root that's kind of hard to kill. He gets boiled in oil. 
right? The human french fry. He gets sent off to some island in exile. It's not a pretty sight. Now, by God's grace, you and I don't walk that same path at the moment. We do have brothers and sisters in the world who do. But for all of us, we have to ask the question, if, what, is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? If we follow a crucified Messiah who has not yet made everything right, and we're invited into this eternal cosmic conflict, and we're on the winning side, and we have the power of the Spirit, and we have the Word of God, all of those things are in our favor, and yet there are still hard things that come. He says, take up your cross. How easy is it for me to do that in concept and yet then really struggle when it gets hard? Pick up the cross and then whine about the splinters. That's real easy. I think that's why he's speaking to them the way that he is to try to get them to understand, yes, I am who you think I am, but not the way that you think I am, at least not yet, which means you can't be who you think you're going to be, at least not the way you think you're going to be, at least not yet. So he goes on, verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 24, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, don't try to cling to life in this world the way you have it envisioned, because then you lose everything. But instead, surrender that to me, and you get everything. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. People debate over what was that they would see. And then the very next story probably answers that, at least in part. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, the glorious presence of God expressed in this world has a number of parts to it that these men see. I think. I think that's the best way to understand it. It includes the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, giving of the Holy Spirit, founding of the church, and it also certainly includes this little preview picture that we're about to look at, because this is what makes it really clear. You said I'm the Messiah. That's true, but it's not the way you think, but let me really underscore, I really am. I really am the Messiah. Don't, don't run away. I've got the answers. I'm the right guy, and it's glorious, It's just not the time for that to be fully expressed. Take a look in this next story, the transfiguration. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Let's just stop for a second. Moses and Elijah are significant as two of the most significant people prior to the time of Christ. They're significant as uh, likely representing the law and the prophets. Um, They're significant in that both of them are tied in with ideas of Messiah coming. Messiah is going to be like Elijah returning. He's going to be the prophet in the last days that you should listen to. Moses tells them he's going to be a prophet like me. So there's a lot of reasons why Moses and Elijah appear to be there talking with Jesus. And it's interesting, just to point out a word to you that I'll make sense of in just a minute. Uh, Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus is actually the literal word. It's not the normal word for departure. It's exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter... 
and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents or tabernacles or booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Okay, he wakes up and they're leaving. And he knows this is really important. Now, sometimes we pick on Peter and say, what an idiot. He's actually really, really smart here. He just doesn't get it all the way. That's part of what this whole section is about. You're on track. You just need to keep going. This is a momentous occasion. And the Feast of Booths, which is what he seems to be keying into, building a a booth or a a tabernacle, a little brush lean-to. He doesn't have his REI tent that he's going to pop out. That was something that in the book of Zechariah, in fact, let me read you a verse from Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 16. It's speaking of the day of the Messiah when he comes and conquers and rules the world. And it says, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. That's the Messiah. That's Christ. That's Jesus, who's just been identified. They'll go there to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So there's this idea that the Feast of Booths was something that would happen in the fall to say thank you for this great harvest and we're trusting you for what's yet to come. And then that gets this idea as, as the uh, Old Testament narrative unfolds of that's a good picture for the coming of the Messiah and, and everyone in the world is going to celebrate this. Thank you for your provision and we're trusting you for it's to come. And so when Peter wakes up and he sees Moses and he sees Elijah and he sees Jesus in all his glory, he says, this is a moment. I don't want it to pass. What can I do? Let's start this thing. Let's do the Feast of Booths thing. He, he gets it, just not all the way. That's one of the reasons it says he doesn't understand because one of the things he says is let's build a booth for each of you and it would seem that where he goes off track is he, he's treating Jesus kind of on a par with these guys, which is not, which is not insulting Jesus in Peter's mind because you can't get much higher than Elijah and Moses in their minds. In fact, you really can't. You can throw in David and, and you're pretty well done. There's the list. So you're the son of David, and you're here with Moses. You're here with Elijah. Uh, Oh, wow, this is great. You're like one of those guys, and Jesus is actually not at all. He transcends that. So Peter, in his zeal and desire not to have this incredible moment pass, gets it partway, but he still doesn't get all the way. No, Jesus is a different order. So verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Likely that reminded them of the cloud of glory that God manifested in himself in the Old Testament. So here's this picture. I, I know for if, if you're kind of new to the scriptures, just hang with me, okay? For those of you that have a lot of history, I think this is legitimate. We want to be careful about not reading other passages into our passage just because we like how they fit. But it seems that this is what Luke would have in mind. They're caught up in this moment where the glory of God is revealed. The Messiah is displayed, and he's there with these two great prophets of old, and they get that this is a messianic moment, and they want to keep celebrating that, and then God steps in, and he says, you still don't get it. So when the cloud envelops them, that's a scary moment, because in the Old Testament, when the cloud of glory showed up, people fled. They couldn't stay in the temple. They couldn't stay in the tabernacle, because you can't be around the glory of God and live. And so this cloud comes around them, And um, 
a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. He's not like Moses, he's not like Elijah, he's different. He's the one to listen to. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. Likely, they were just so overwhelmed, they weren't even quite sure what to say. So here's the story. Peter gets it right, but he doesn't understand it. There's this little preview window to say, I really am the Messiah, and all that you expect is there, but not yet. I have to do something more critical right now, and that means I have to die. That means we're not going to have our victory lap yet, which also means your following of me isn't going to be just, you know, I don't tell you, take up your lazy boy, or more accurately, be taken up on your lazy boy. I say, pick up your cross. And to them, that's, that's a horrible image. That's an image of rejection. That's an image of aloneness. That's an image of being doomed. And he's saying, you're going to have to let go of some things to really follow me. But understand, I got this. I am who you think. Everything's going to be right. Everything's going to be good. If you release your life, you get everything. But if you try to cling to it, you lose everything. Now, for our last few minutes, I want to try to drive this into a much more personal, grabbing hold of it kind of thing. And Jesus gives us a wonderful description of what it means to be a disciple in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's three things that it says. Here's where it becomes very personal for me. And here's where me asking the question, what's the world that I'm seeking to gain? Is it going to build my soul? Is it going to shrivel my soul? Do I let Jesus define what I seek or do I let what I seek define Jesus? Here's where those questions really cash out for us. Discipleship, following Jesus, involves three things here. Deny self. Now, that's not saying, okay, whatever you want, do the opposite. So for me, that would be, whatever you do, don't ever eat another cheeseburger. Eat kale. Right? My doctor will tell me that. But praise God, Jesus is not saying that. That's not what it means to deny self. Although, obviously, I could do a little more denying self of cheeseburgers and having some kale would be good. It means I'm not the point. Deny self. We put the emphasis on deny, and really the emphasis is on self. We are so narcissistic. We are born into this world narcissistic. We think everything revolves around us, and unless we make a decisive shift, that's the way it always is. And that's actually what this verb is. It's a decisive shift. Make a choice to say, I'm not the center of the universe. My life will not be about self-satisfaction. My life will not be about self-absorption. My life will not even be about self-promotion or self-accomplishment or self-fulfillment. Some of those things are just flat wrong, and some of those things have their place. But if they're at the center, I lose everything. If I want to truly be fulfilled, I have to stop saying it's about me being fulfilled because I wasn't designed to fulfill me. I was designed to have God fulfill me. I was designed to live in relationship that would fulfill me, which means 
I have to take myself out of the center. That's what he calls his disciples to. And he says, this is a decisive choice you make. This is something you just do. Not that you never have to do it again. But it's not like this is my constant thought, deny self, deny self, deny self. There's a shift that takes place. It's a choice that I make. And if I get off track, if I learn that, then I need to come back and make that choice again. But it's this decisive thing. So that's the first question. How big is self in my life? And I guess we can talk about things like what makes me angry or frustrated and should it? How big a role does comfort or security or pleasure play? And is that the size role that it should play? There's a lot of different ways that I can see how big self is. My first response to anything, any challenge, any change, any opportunity, is it me? Or is there something bigger that drives my life? Have I ever really come to grips with the fact that it is so not about me? And actually, my greatest joy and my greatest fulfillment comes in releasing that position that belongs to God that I can't possibly fill and letting him have that role. That's what Jesus calls them to. They're still thinking, okay, he's going to come in. He's going to kick Rome out. We get all these high offices, et cetera, et cetera, wealth and fame and power. And he's saying, yeah, yeah. You're all on the wrong track. I'm the Christ, but I'm here to change you from the inside out. The whole world I'm here to change, and that's a path of hard things. And so what you have to be confronted with first and what I have to respond to first is what really drives me. Denying self is not saying how difficult and painful can I make my life. That's a huge heretical error that has shown up in churches throughout the centuries. God is not wanting to make your life miserable. Although we might say this morning with no air conditioning and the heat, it's kind of miserable, but that's circumstances, right? He's not trying to say, how miserable can I make your life? He wants to make it wonderful. He wants to make it glorious. He wants to make it beautiful. He wants to make it delightful. But we live in an age where that can't happen without a lot of other things happening, and those other things happening require some hard work. And for me to experience that in this age or in the age to come, the hard work starts with me making a shift to say, it ain't ain't about me, right? So he says, deny self. The second thing he says here is take up your cross daily, right? Take up your cross is also a decisive action. It's not uh, keep taking up your cross and keep taking up your cross and keep taking, it's not He's not focusing on that. He's focusing on this decisive choice that you make. But it is a choice that has to be remade all the time, like on a daily basis. Get up in the morning and say, am I going to take up my cross? Am I going to be willing to sacrifice? Am I going to be willing to do a hard thing if that's what God calls me to? Certainly not going to seek it, but if it's what the path leads through, I'm willing to do that. Am I willing to embrace that? Am I willing to let go of my life? And am I willing to do that tomorrow? And am I willing to do that the next day? And am I willing to do that the next day? And just, I have to keep coming back to that because following Jesus for all of the joy and glory has things about it that can be challenging. And I have to re-up because over time he may ask for something more. Or over time I may get tired of what he's already asking for. I was actually processing this very personally a while back And, you know, in my life, I have long ago made a choice by God's grace to say, 
I'll take up the cross. I'll, I'll, I'll do what you want. I'll do the hard thing. I'm, 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 I'm good with that. But then the hard thing comes, and I had a particular area where it was coming, and it wasn't making sense to me. Why is this so hard? Why am I struggling this much? Why is this hurt so much? Why isn't this going the way that it ought to go? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to follow you in this, Lord, and it's not supposed to work out this way, and that's how it's happening. And you know what I found myself doing was pulling back. And I was actually processing it with a friend and, and talking about, here's what I think I need from God to keep doing what I'm doing in this area. And it strikes me that I have fallen into a pattern when I say that of saying, God, I'm a really good asset to you. You know, you really want me on your team. You really like me. I'm, I'm, I'm like one of your favorite sons. You have to admit that, right, God? So here's my demands. Uh, if you want me to keep doing this, then something I would never, ever articulate. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that's right. And yet that's where I was living. And in fact, as I was processing things with my friend, I came back to say, you know what? I'm somebody who's been assigned by God to live this particular arena, this particular thing that I'm struggling with. And I, I honestly don't know what I'm going to do if, if he doesn't do something. But that's not my call. I guess I'll have to trust him in that too. Kind of pushed me back into a really fundamental question. That happens all the time. It happens when there's a disappointment at work. It happens when we're struggling with a kid. It happens when... There's a financial reversal. It happens when the doctor says something. It happens when we're dreaming and planning and moving and we're doing everything we think we're supposed to be doing and it doesn't work. And it keeps not working. And what's hard doesn't get easier. And that's why I think Jesus is saying this. It's like, if you, if you surrender your life to me, I will more than take care of you. But there's this daily choice of heart to say, here it is again. Get up the next morning. Here it is again. Get up the next morning. Here it is again. And it's really subtle how that can sometimes shift, how, I, how, how demands can creep in. So Jesus addresses that. The last thing he says here, follow me. That one is focusing on a constant thing. That's follow me and keep following me. Make this your continuous practice. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say follow my word, although that's certainly part of the deal. In fact, the word is really emphasized here. Listen to him. Don't be ashamed of me or my words. But it says follow me. It doesn't say follow my will. Although that's certainly emphasized, if you read this passage and you just look at what Jesus is doing, who is our ultimate model, everything he's doing is run through the grid of what is God's will, what is God's plan, what's he doing right now, and how do I join him in that? But he still doesn't say, follow my will. doesn't say, follow my pattern. I've laid out a path, I'm going back to heaven, and you can follow along. There's a measure in which that's true, too. But there's something more personal. Follow me. Right? You know what the most common promise in Scripture is? I will be with you. That's the number one promise. 
And you know what the fundamental call of discipleship is? Follow me. Be with me. That's what we most need. That's what was lost. That's what Adam and Eve lost. The world continued. It's messed up, but the world continued. They lost God. They were separated. And so the restoration of Jesus isn't to say, hey, here's some good stuff, and here's heaven, and here's, it's, it's me. I, you get me. You get to have a relationship with me. So fundamental to discipleship is daily, continually, constantly following me. It's good to think about our prepositions with God. What preposition drives your understanding of your relationship to God? Is it for? Here's what I do for God. It's valid, but it's really incomplete. Here's what I do because of God. He's changed me. He's forgiven me. He's said, here's what the morality is, and he's given me a spirit. It's great. You know, that's good, but that's a really inadequate preposition. Here's what I do by God. It's his spirit within me, right? Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Walk by means of the spirit. You won't fulfill the lust of it. Here's what I do by God. That's also valid, but it's inadequate. I think the, the preposition that we need to drive into our lives and the one that so easily gets lost is with. With. What do I do with God? It's supposed to be my whole life. And then I'll do for God and because of God and by God. All those things, I don't lose them. They just take on their right proportion. Jesus is calling them to say, your number one priority is to follow. It's to be with me and, and trust that. It's easy to lose that, especially... Well, not just especially. I think if I'm living a very self-absorbed life, I lose that easily. But even as somebody who's passionately trying to follow Jesus, and here's the mission, and here's the pursuit of what we're supposed to be and do and all of those things, it's easy to keep doing those things and leave the connection with God out. Some of you know the name John Ortberg. He's a pastor in Northern California, well-known. He was uh, on his way to a conference for God, because of God, in Edmonton, Alberta. And uh, there was no direct flight from San Francisco to Edmonton, so he routed through Calgary. And so they're coming down out of the clouds into Calgary. In fact, they're close enough he can see the cars and the cows and the people and, you know, the buildings, everything, the grass. And he's thinking, all right, we're going to make it fine, and then I can make my connection, get to Edmonton in time for this conference that I'm a major part of, and that's going to be great, because he's doing what he's doing for God. And suddenly, the pilot guns the engine, and they soar. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, we have bad weather. We're not going to be able to land in Calgary. We're going to have to reroute to another city. And immediately, Ortberg's response was probably what mine would be, oh, God, how could you let this happen? I only have so much time to make my connecting flight to Edmonton, and if I miss it, I'm not going to be able to do the conference, which I'm doing because of you, God. What's going on? And they fly a little bit, and then the pilot comes on. He says, ladies and gentlemen, they've rerouted us to Edmonton. We'll be landing there in a few minutes. He's like, yeah, go, God, this is so cool. I knew you could come through. This is awesome. It's great to follow Jesus. 
They come and they land and they taxi and they stop and there's no jetway. There's no stairs. Everything stays closed. The pilot comes on. He says, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to sit here on the runway or on the tarmac for about three hours. And then they're going to send us back to Calgary. God, what are you doing? Ah! He's up and down and up and down. Because his number one focus in that moment is what he's doing for God and because of God and by God. And he's forgot the number one focus is being with God. And God's in this moment. So they're sitting there. And after about an hour going nuts, the stewardesses or the flight attendants do what flight attendants can only do in those scenarios. They open the bar, right? So, and, and during his hour, he's making his case to the, to the flight attendants and the pilot passes through. He makes his case. I'm sorry, we can't let you off. In fact, it would actually be a violation of international law to let you off here, blah, blah, blah. Oh, this is terrible, but don't you understand? I've got this talk to give, blah, blah, blah. So everyone on the plane knows that pretty soon. And, and after about an hour of the open bar, nobody else cares. They're all happy. John's the only one unhappy. And they're looking at him saying, hey, tell us your talk. We'll listen. Hey, you know, hey come on. And um, after a little while of that, the pilot comes back on and says, ladies and gentlemen, we're getting off the plane here. And we're going to just go into a holding area. We're still not going to let you out, but we're going to go into the holding area. And wait, you don't have to stay on the plane. And during this several-hour trial, John was processing and allowing God to speak in, and he actually remembered what he'd read in a book that morning by a, a spiritual author that he particularly valued who said, I have to just entrust things to God. I'm about being with God. I entrust everything to him, and, you know, I can't control planes. I can't control weather. I can't control people. I'll just do what I can and leave it to God. And suddenly it hit John. That's my problem, planes, weather, and people. And he just relaxed to be with God. Whatever happens is fine. They got into the holding area. Everybody knew John's story by now. One of the pilots actually shared it with the guy who was in charge of immigration for that area of the airport. He said, my daughter's going to that conference. I need him to be there. And he found a way to process him through and put him on a cab, and he gets to Edmonton event before he ever would have if things had worked out as he planned. Now, the point of the story is not that, hey, if I'm with God, everything's always going to go so that I get to where I'm supposed to be when I want to be there. Define how I understand it. Because God's purpose could have said, John, I want you to miss this. I've got something else going. The point is, when I'm with God, I'm going to be where I'm supposed to be, when I'm supposed to be there, by how God's defined it. And regardless of the journey, I'm with him. Jesus says, here's what you need to know. I'm not the kind of Messiah you've been thinking. So you can't be the kind of disciple you're hoping. That comes later. So right now, here's what I need you to do. I need you to say it's not about you and just make that decisive shift deny self. I need you to be willing to sacrifice and embrace hard things. If that's what I call you to, take up your cross and you'll have to do that again and again. And most of all, I need you to live with this constant, continual I need Jesus. I'm following a person. I'm not following a plan. I'm not following an institution. I'm not following a moral code. I'm following a person. We're doing this together. And if you'll do that, 
It may feel at times like you've let go of your life, but I'm going to give it back to you. Nobody ever gave that up who didn't get life. So that's the question for us. What's my preposition? My with? Is that my focus with God? Let me pray. Lord, I do ask that you would help us, first and foremost, to be with you, to know you, to follow you, to serve you, but to do that with you, to be one who is constantly marked by prayer and a sense that I'm joining a world where you're at work and I'm supposed to look for you and walk with you. Um, Lord, for each of us, wherever we are, would you just draw us deeper into relationship with you? First and foremost, I pray in your name.